Hi there. Welcome back to Real Film Chronicles. As always, I'm Nathan. My name is Brian. And this is episode 17, wherein we talk about The Mummy, the 1999 version. Classic. Yes, to be clear, we are not going to be talking about the 2017 Tom Cruise (laughs) film. Uh, Let's stick to not even the original, because this is still a remake of the classic Universal monster movie, The Mummy, right? Yeah. Um, have you seen that original? I think it's probably like a 1930s film. Um, I've seen parts of it, but I haven't seen the whole thing. Honestly, my my knowledge of the old Hammer or old Universal and Hammer horror films, I haven't yeah. seen all of them. I think the big ones I've seen, like I always loved the Frankenstein myth. Oh, yeah, Frankenstein yeah. story. So I lots of, watched a lot of the Frankensteins. I watched The Wolfman. Recently, I watched The Invisible Man, which was... Man, the special effects in that were so so <laughs> much better than I was expecting for the 1930s, right? That blew me away, actually. It was really, it was something else. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. I The Universal Monster movies have been a general blind spot in my, you know, my film watching habits. I finally did watch The Invisible Man last year as part of uh, like a horror movie project. Uh, and I think I ended up watching The Invisible Man Returns right afterwards uh, as well. And I was kind of blown away with the effects in both. They're all good stories. And I should go check out The Mummy uh, and all these other ones. I, I, I need to go see The Wolfman. We were talking about Werewolves <laughs> Within a few weeks ago. And it's just like, oh, I need to go back to the original uh, Wolfman there as well. This might be my uh, Halloween project this year. Maybe I should go back to all yeah. the old uh, Universal films there and just go through some of that filmography. Maybe I'll do. Th- there was a big box set. Um, yes. brought out a number of years ago. And I think uh, there, like it has like 20 some odd films, which has like the, the entire franchise of all those characters. And it's like, oh, I look at that box and I haven't seen anything and I've, I feel shame. But yeah, we're talking about The Mummy 1999, directed by Stephen Summers, uh, starring none other than Brendan Fraser, Rachel Wise, John Hanna, Arnold Vosloo, yep. Jonathan Hyde, and Kevin J. O'Connor. Those are like, it was, it's just an incredible cast of characters in this movie. Um, I, I guess we kind of start at the beginning, like 1999. This movie was released in May. It was like the beginning of a blockbuster uh, summer, I would think, in May. <laughs> Do you remember seeing this movie in theaters or anything? Like what was your first exposure to The Mummy? Man, I don't recall seeing it in theaters, but I recall watching it like Dozens mm. of times. Yeah. Because um, 1999, how old would I have been? I would have been in my late teens. So I don't want to say watching it growing up. Maybe that's not um, the best you way to already grown it. up. I was already pretty grown out. up. But like, wow. We we got it on, I must have had it on, on VHS yeah. originally. And like, yeah, it's. I, I threw it on last night to, to rewatch it. And it's one of those movies that just it's ingrained in my brain. Like I could, I could close my eyes and literally have this movie play out. (laughs) It's just, it is one of the most perfect summer action blockbusters ever committed to film. Like the story and the special effects and the acting and the directing and the cinematography, just like, it's still like watching that next to something like jungle cruise um, or, or something like, the tomorrow war like modern kind of action adventure kind of films and you just see the simplicity in the filmmaking i don't mean to say that in a derogatory way but everything was just so much more like straightforward in terms of storytelling but had so Mm -hmm. much depth behind it still it was just like yeah it was it was it's amazing 
the movie does, it functions on multiple levels. Like, I mean, it looks, the film makes it look easy, right? It's just like, oh my goodness, there's interesting characters with, with their own little stories going on and their own adventure. There's a great big overall adventure. There's ancient history in here in the, uh, obviously the mummy and ancient Egypt, the pyramids, tombs, the whole nine yards. There's, there's just a lot of stuff going on here and it's intensely fascinating. It's, It's a ton of fun to watch. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously we grew up with Indiana Jones and like tomb raiding in that sense. And I feel like this is maybe the closest we got to it after that. It's just like, for me, I think I was turning 18 in 1999 watching this after watching Indiana Jones my whole life. And it's like, oh, this, I can, this is a, like an update that I can get behind. This oh, yeah. captures a magic that I had experienced when I was young. Like the mummy and the character of Rick O'Connell, I think that was the closest that we've had so far as an heir apparent to that legacy of Indiana Jones, and which goes mm-hmm. back to that legacy of you know those old nineteen um, thirties serials that you know influenced George Lucas and Steven Spielberg to to create Indiana Jones in the first place, and so it's that's the closest thing I've had. Like with all due respect to to Shia LaBeouf and uh, or Shia LaBeouf and and his character Mutt in that fourth Indiana Jones yes. movie, <laughs> Rick O'Connell was the heir apparent. Brendan Fraser just has this just this effortless charm, and I think. I think there's been a resurgence recently in appreciating um, Brendan Fraser's work. He was a treasure. Yeah. He still is. He still is. Absolutely. I don't think that at the time you you tend to take for granted when you get something great like that, when you get a great performance or a great actor. And Brendan Fraser wasn't maybe as obviously great maybe as somebody like like Tom Cruise. Um, Well, I want to go through. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, say, I want to go through a few of his movies here, uh, just on Letterbox, sort of sorted by popularity. And I remember having this discussion with you and a couple others, possibly in the early 2000s, when Brendan Fraser was at the height of his career, is that there was a weird stat in Hollywood where you wouldn't think Fraser's movies were as good as they were, but he was the highest. Now, this is like possibly false, but he had the highest average grossing movies of any movie star at the time like the mummy the mummy returns uh george of the jungle journey oh, to yeah. the center of the earth all <laughs> these movies were grossing three four five hundred million dollars everything he was in was grossing a lot of cash and he didn't ha- like have a lot of failures in there he was just if he was in your movie your movie was almost guaranteed to make three or four hundred million dollars at the box office it was it was quite a time to be a uh a Fraser fan. Oh yeah, and for sure, I don't, I don't think people realized what they had until it was gone, right? Where he was kind of went through a period, and I'm not sure what the the background is, but it feels like he kind yeah. of dropped out of the limelight a little bit in, in for at least a decade or so there, right? Or he just wasn't in stuff. I mean, he like what was the last big big one? I remember like that that run of films you're talking about, like The Mummy Returns and George of the Jungle. Journey to the center of the earth. There was like bedazzled in there, I think. Uh, so I'm just going to sort by like release date here. Uh, yeah. Bedazzled was another one. Uh, the mummy, uh, Dudley do right blast for the past. Right. Oh uh, yeah. Bedazzled monkey bone was one mummy returns. Of course. Uh, there's a Looney tunes movie. He was in crash as well, which was fantastic. Um, and, that sort of later on, you sort of see a little bit of faulting here. Movies I don't recognize, but like Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Uh, there was a G.I. Joe, Rise of the Cobra movie in he was there. In that? 
Yeah, I don't really. know. And that's where that's we're talking about 2009, where you sort of, for at least me, you sort of fell off the radar. Me too. Also, I know it wasn't recent, but like, am I going crazy or was Brendan Fraser Encino Man? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, he, well, he was, was the caveman that they that they thought out in Encino Man, right? Oh my goodness! What? Yeah, that was, was one of his earliest roles. There. And, <laughs> yes, nineteen ninety. Just came back to me thinking about George of the Jungle, and him with like yeah. the long hair and everything. Was like, no way, it can't be. It was like, it was him. Yeah, and then also Airheads as well. Oh, with Adam Sandler. Yeah. It's just like speaking of long hair. <laughs> but like, you look at his filmography, and like, for some reason, like there was a. There was a humility, I think, to Brendan Fraser in his performances. Mm-hmm. That he didn't really draw attention to himself as a leading man, even though he could command that presence. But I never yeah. thought of him as, as a leading man. I just thought him thought of him as a, as that dude, right? As like as Rick O'Connell. He was, he was just like he was Rick O'Connell, man. It, it was just yeah. one of those things where like the actor and the character come together is like that that perfect synergy. And it's like it was a role that he was born to play. Do we want to go over oh. like the basic plot of the mummy before we go on? Like, uh, I mean, we can. Do you have yeah. A plot synopsis um, uh, queued up for us there. You want to hear the plot synopsis? Yeah, let's let's just read it here every, from Letterboxd. Every day, I want to wake up and hear that plot <laughs> plot synopsis read to me, preferably by Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Well, <laughs> all you get is me for now. Yeah. Poor imitation here. Um, <laughs> dashing legionnaire Rick O'Connell stumbles upon the hidden ruins of Hamanoptra while in the midst of a battle to claim the area in 1920s Egypt. It has been over 3,000 years since former high priest Imhotep suffered a fate worse than death as a punishment for a forbidden love, along with a curse that guarantees eternal doom upon the world if he is ever awoken. Ugh. Fantastic. <laughs> and that's basically it. It's just like the movie sort of starts out with Rocco Connell uh, trying to steal some treasure from a tomb and, and basically fails, I think, the the Magi who are like tasked with protecting Imhotep's tomb for all eternity uh, sort of turn things on its head. And we fast forward a few years. Um, I, don't, I don't even know where to go with the, the, the plot here. But basically, yeah, um, Evelyn... Uh, also known as Evie throughout the movie, uh, played by Rachel Wise and her brother, I think it was John Hanna is the brother. Yeah. Um, they basically- Jonathan. Get us, yeah, Jonathan. They're just, they, they want to go to Hamanoptera and get this treasure. Uh, what are they looking for? Like the Book of the Dead, the Book of the Living, well, everything. What happens is, it's revealed later, but um, Jonathan actually comes across this little, um, little box that opens up. It's got a map and the map is to- Hamanoptra and Hamanoptra oh, is yes. this legendary city. And then, um, you know, Rachel Wise goes to her boss. She's a librarian and she goes to her boss. who's like, a, it's almost like as a librarian is like museum. And so he, mm-hmm. she goes to the, the curator, her boss. And, you know, it's like, Oh, well like this, lo- this map looks legit. Like I've dated this, you know, yeah. like it, it's completely legit. And it's like, it's pointing the way to Hamanoptra and the map accidentally catches on fire when they're looking at it. And so it's like, Oh, like, we can't get there now. It's like, well, and then Jonathan reveals, cause like Jonathan. So like, um, Evie's like a librarian slash, um, a scholar, I guess. And yes. I think her, you get the sense that her brother is also kind of a scholar, maybe a, an archeologist or he's, he's got obviously educational background. Cause he's reading hieroglyphics later on in the movie too. Like he's not, yeah. he's not an idiot. His motivations were always kind of more financial and like a little more. Yeah. And so he greedy. says like he was after the treasures while she was after the like the, the knowledge the love of the uh, yeah. the knowledge yeah because he says he found he found it on a dig 
Um, but it's revealed he he picked somebody's pocket at a local, I think it's a local <laughs> pub or something or a local bar in Egypt. And it turns out to be he picked the pocket of Rick O'Connell, who's in jail for having a very good time. <laughs> um, and they go to him and he's like, can you tell us about the map? And he's like, um, yeah, well, like I can show you the way to Hamanoptra because I've actually been there. And then, and then, but he's being taken to be hanged. And so he's like, if you can get me out of here, I'll take you to wherever you want to go, lady. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so they, they do the, all this stuff is, I'm, I can't do it justice. Cause there's this, there's this certain charm and there's a certain yeah. humor to everything that's going on. Um, where, uh, <laughs> you know, like little lines, like you, like, um, where he says like, I've been to Hominoptera, Hominoptera, right? Rick, Rick says, I've been to Hominoptera myself. And Evie says, do you swear? And he says, every damn day. And without me, she's like, it's like, that's not what I meant. It's like, I know what you meant, but it's like, just the yeah. way like, it could have come off, come off as really cheesy with other, with another actor, or you try to play too serious or too comedic, but they just balance out roles like that. And it's like really kind yeah. of witty back and forth. Right. And it's just, yeah. It's the, just so the great. dialogue back and forth is, is fantastic. Like all the characters seem to be really like w- really well written and have their own interesting quirks. They don't feel like just cutouts. Even the background characters like um um Benny who is Benny yeah Benny Fantastic. kind of that dynamic between Benny and Rick so Benny was with the legionnaires um uh, Rick and the legionnaires when they went to take Hominoptera that first time um it was 1923 and then the rest of the movie takes place in 1926 um but Benny is this kind of like cowardly character who has this like weird like essentially he's a friend of, he's Rick's frenemy Right. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. he's Rick's frenemy. Before there was a term for frenemy, because like they have this weird kind of bond <laughs> where it's like they've been through some stuff together, right? They've yes. been down the trenches together. But Benny is this really cowardly character, really self-serving character, um, who's like after fame and glory and riches. But like as soon as there's a big fight that he thinks he can't win, is like he runs the other way. Where like Rick will stand yeah. and fight to the end, kind of thing. He's got a code of Rick's got a code of honor, even though he's a treasure hunter as well. But then the warden too, where Evie goes and negotiates negotiates Rick's release with this warden. Um, and they do the, do the, the bargaining back and forth and, and there's like, yeah. I'll give you 10% of the treasure if you let him go. While, while Rick's like hanging from a rope being hanged. Yeah. And, right. back and, like 50%, intense. and she's like, you know, 20, he's like 30. And it's like, and she's, and she's like 30 and he says 25. It's like, ah, ah. And he's like, yeah. ah, <laughs> but the warden is great too. Cause like, he's this kind of comedy relief character, but he's got his own like backstory and his own character yeah. going on. Right. It's really, it gives you a sense that these aren't just characters in a movie. These are real people in a lived in world going through their lives and their lives are coming and intersecting with each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't don't know. I keep thinking about the first scene where we were introduced to Evie. Uh, She's in the library (laughs) and she accidentally, like she's kind of getting greedy. She's on a, the top shelf, like she's on a ladder putting some books away and she has to put books on the opposite shelf. She's like, okay, well maybe I can just sort of shift the ladder over here and go over. And she inadvertently knocks over the bookcase. These bookcases are like 20 feet tall. They're huge. And just causes a giant domino effect. It goes all the way around the library because they're all evenly spaced apart. Total destruction in this place. Everything is down. It's a funny moment. The boss comes in, you know, he's a, he's kind of, he's upset. And the scene works on multiple levels in that we get some exposition on her expertise, like her character. She's not just a, like, she's a little clumsy, fine. 
But she, the boss asked her, just like, you know, like you're awful. Like, why do I keep you around? And she's like, well, you know, you keep me around because I can read hieroglyphics really easily. And I know all this stuff. I know this, this, and this, all of which comes in handy later on. And it's like, gives her a perfect reason. Like she is on this mission. She's extremely valuable. And then when they find the map, the brother comes in with a map. Uh, he said it was an accident. But they burned part of the map. I didn't well, want to spoil it. Turns it out the, yeah, <laughs> the, the, you know, spoiler alert. I love this thing where it's like, well, he is one of these Magi that are uh, uh, tasked with protecting the tomb and he burnt it on purpose. And it's just like, oh, this guy even has multiple levels going on. And it's not like, I don't think he joins the fight later on. Like he, this is his station, right? It's just he like, does oh, join, there's a world. Does he join the fight? He joins the fight later on and he sacrifices himself so they can get away, oh. escape down the sewer when they're being chased later on. Oh, that's right. Yes, when they return to the city, yeah. And it's just like you get a sense, like this is a whole network of people who are like fully invested in this legend. And his station is in London, right? Um, where the staff this stuff is taking place and there's just people you get the sense of people all over the world. Yeah. Listen, there's a secret society in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's a secret society that's dedicated to um safeguarding the the um the grail, right? The Holy Grail to making sure people don't no. take it and use it for evil purposes. And there's a secret society in the mummy. Now there's obvious parallels you can take there. There's even like the secret society members. A lot of them are wearing specific tattoos that mark them yes. as those society members, but there's a walking this really fine line between, um, you know, theft and inspiration. Right. And I think that you can clearly see like there's obvious inspiration there from the Indiana Jones movies, but mm-hmm. they they took it and they made it their own thing. It, it doesn't feel like it's ripped off from Indiana Jones. It feels like there's yeah. a, a connection of inspiration there, but it feels like fresh enough. And with it feels like it makes sense within the context of this movie and, and the backstory that's being told that it makes sense here, right? Yeah. And so I, I love that it's paying homage to, to those earlier adventure movies like Indiana Jones without just direct imitation, right? Mm-hmm. And like you said, there's such an economy of storytelling where, you know, Evie, obviously she's not, you know, she doesn't have a lot of real world field experience. She, you know, she, she's, um, she knocks over all those shelves in what's probably the, the most poorly designed um, library <laughs> yeah. in, in the world. But it's like, you get the backstory is like, yeah, she's, you know, she has this scholarly background. She can read hieroglyphics and, and heretic and she can speak hierog- yeah. like can she speak ancient Egyptian. She can organize this library. She knows like she's obviously trying to she's in contact with Bembridge scholars. She's trying to, you know, like get papers published. And then you also find out it's like, you know, like the reason I and the the curator there, what's the guy's name? Like he's in so much stuff. I, I can't remember it. I don't I love that actors. Yeah. Um but he's but he's also gives his backstory. He's like, yeah, the, no the reason I put up with you is because your parents were my patrons, were my, some of my best patrons, God rest their souls. So you yes. find out it's like, oh, they're orphans, right? They were, they're taken in by this. So you got this love hate relationship. I love like his little, oh, it's just like the writing is like, yeah, no, it's like, no, when, when Ramses invaded Syria, that was an accident. You're a catastrophe. <laughs> it's like, I don't care how long it takes. You're going to stay here and straighten out this mischiever. It's like, just, yeah. I could go on quoting this forever, but it's like, even that little side character, he's got so much going on. You think like, oh, he's a clumsy guy who burned the map. And he's like, oh, because he's careless and doesn't yeah. care. It's like, no, he's trying to protect the entire, he's on this mission to protect the entire world 
from probably one of the worst curses anybody like, why would first of all why would you give this curse it doesn't make any sense but it oh. makes all kinds of sense <laughs> but it's great but he's like he's trying to save the world and he's like he comes off as kind of a kind of a jerk kind of a heartless jerk and he's like oh he's just trying to stand in their way it was like no he's trying to protect them from themselves he's trying to protect the world from this terrible evil he knows is lurking out there right yeah well that's a that's a nice thing is like the secret society here isn't they're not evil and they're not like trying to kill our main characters. Like they are, they're trying to protect our main characters, but also the greater responsibility of the world, you know, it takes some priority, but it's like, they're not bad people. And we are able to, the movie fully conveys why we do not want to see the mummy uh, come out of his uh, deep slumber here or whatever. Well, to be clear, that secret society does try to kill the main characters, but only because they're encroaching on that, on that place where the, where the, you know, Imhotep, the ancient priest, the mummy is is buried and they could potentially release him. So like they're trying to kill them as a last resort, but not, That's right. like it's they, not malicious. They basically, yeah, it's not malicious. They spend more time like just watching people. It's, it's not like they're in London. It's like, oh, geez, these guys have a map. They got this. We should just assassinate them in the streets. And like, no, 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 they're going to follow them like all the way there just to see if they can make it to the hidden city. And yeah. then kind of take more action. I like at that. that point. It was like, we're going to use violence as a last resort. But it's like, no, like they found the map. It's like, well, I'll burn the map and hopefully they're just going to, you know, forget about it and go back. It's like, no, we're, we're going to, you know, like they're going there. It's like, we're going to follow them to see what's going on. It's like, once they, it's only once they actually get to Hamanoptera, um, that they're like, well, we got to stop them by any means necessary because if they unleash that evil, the entire world is essentially going to end. And so, I mean, moving the plot forward here, they this is where the adventure begins, right? We've got Rick, we've got Evie, we've got Jonathan, and the warden who is going to get a percentage of the treasure insists on going with them. So there's a, a quartet of them going. They're on the riverboat, sort of like the first oh, leg man. of their journey, where we are reintroduced to Benny. Uh, and he is partnered up with an American team of adventurers who are also after the treasure of uh, Habanoptera. And of course... You know, disaster strikes. They, I think they are. They do try and kill. Well, the, the secret society shows up. And they set the boat on fire, but I think like yeah, most everybody gets off. Everybody okay. gets off. They were there specifically that. to get like to get the map and the yeah. um, little little box the map came in, which turns out to be the actual key that they need to open various things. But I love that scene because the boat the boat is sinking. The all abandoned ship. Uh, Rick and his crew are on one side of the river. Benny and his are on the other side. And <laughs> Benny is like trying to taunt Rick. It's just like, hey, O'Connell. Yeah. <laughs> hey, O'Connell. Looks like we've got all the horses. And that retort is like, I love that. It's like, hey, Benny, looks like you're on the wrong side of the river. And then Benny just takes a moment and he's like, he looks around and he's like, ah. It's like, oh, there's such, such great little beats like that, right? It's like, he, the oh action is great, and there's a little moments like where Rick's being shot at, like Rick and Ev- Rick and Evie are behind this barrier, and you see the bullets coming through closer and closer to Rick, and yeah. Evie just like pulls him over a bit, and like what a bullet like explodes right where his head used to be, <laughs> and he just gives it a little look, and then go, but he goes back and starts shooting at the bad guys again. But it's like little like touches like that, and it's like the relationship between the characters. Um, you get a sense of okay, there's an American team, and they're going there, and. And you just get like these little, and you meet them at a poker game, and they're not like they're not super antagonistic. The the hired yeah. guns that they have with them, I was like, let's make a friendly bet, like five hundred bucks to see which group uh, gets to Hamanopter first. 
And it's like, but just like all these little character beats that are fleshing out these background characters as well, you know? And it's just, ah, it's just, I love those little, it's perfectly paced, yeah. right? You put, there was just enough time to, for the characters to breathe and then you get this awesome action set piece that's still memorable, right? You can close your eyes, you can see the whole thing. Then that, and that one guy with like the blade in his hand, it's like, he's got like a, <laughs> assumably, presumably he's got like a prosthetic and he's like clips that blade in and that, that yeah, even yeah. that one little thug, he's got like a whole arc as he goes through and gets like burned alive. <laughs> so brutal. I mean, the deaths that do happen are pretty gnarly, aren't they? Like, would you say this is a bit of a family film? Like, are you, you're going to show your kids this movie? Oh, I've showed my kids already. Yeah, but it's, this is the thing. It's it's very kind of PG-13 violence where even, but it's weird though. Like you see like, like when, like the mummy and stuff and he's pretty gory when he's first resurrected. And he's you very can see, slimy. Like, yeah. He's got, or as they say in the movie, juicy. Juicy, yes, exactly. <laughs> There's several instances where like multiple characters will say the same word at once. It's a really kind of corny, cheesy thing, but it works. It works so well. It's just weird, weird things. But yeah, it's like there's some really gory scenes where people are getting eaten alive by these flesh-eating bugs. Yeah. And they come away and it's like, yeah, and it's like this is this gory kind of skeleton. But it's it's not like over the top. You, I, I felt real comfortable. I think I watched this when my kids were, I watched it with my kids when they were, I want to say like uh, maybe nine and 11, maybe, or nine, mm-hmm. or maybe eight and eight and 10, but they weren't, they weren't like old, like I felt super comfortable watching this with little kids, right? Like they weren't going to get nightmares or anything from it. I feel like, you know, 10 years later when they've grown up a bit and then rewatch this film or start thinking about it, it's like, oh, these, the way these characters are dying is really horrific. Like the guy, oh, uh, yeah. the warden is trying to cut these jewels out of this, uh, the, of the wall and turns out these jewels uh, contain these bugs that I, I guess are immortal, these little beetles. Um, and they come to life and like burrow into your skin oh and you goodness. see the little bump that goes up his body. It's just like, Oh my goodness. He starts slapping himself, trying to get this thing out. And then basically it goes into his head and he just falls down dead. It's really horrific. It's like, what oh, a horrible way to go. That's not the worst part though. He doesn't die at that part. How he d- actually dies is this thing burrows into his brain. He's, he's screaming, right? He falls, he collapses, but he gets back up and he's screaming. And like um, Rick and Evie and Jonathan, they're actually like, you know, digging somewhere looking for, um, I think it was the book of the book of the, oh, what was it called? It wasn't the book of the dead. They find the book of the dead, even though they're looking There's for a different book. There's a book of Amun-Ra. But the book of Amun-Ra. So it's not the book of life. It's a book of Amun-Ra. That's what they thought was there. But they're digging, looking for this art, this hugely valuable artifact. They hear this screaming and the warden guy, he, after this insect Burrows into his brain. He comes running down this corridor, runs right past them, and he like runs head first in this wall and bounces back, and he's dead because yeah, he like true. crushes his skull against the wall. Yeah. And it's like Oof. you hear like just like this sound effect, not like not super over the top, super crazy, but it's like that sound effect really sells it. And like the actor who did that, or there's the actor, or the stunt person who did that, yeah. and they hit like hit that wall head on. It's the, the way they fell back and just like stopped dead. Just. <laughs> and it's like such a brutal thing where you crush your own skull against the wall to try and get to try and stop that pain. I'm assuming because it's yeah, it looked really painful, right? And then we have other characters like the uh, the American team. Uh, they ha- they have employed like a, a group of uh, locals, uh, I'm guessing, and they have them sort of open up these different areas. And like some of them are booby trapped, and they have like they're basically I can't remember what he calls it. It's like salt this, acid, uh, salt acid, exactly. Thank you. 
And it's just like that comes jetting out of one of these traps. And oh. there's like just two of them that are just being burned alive with this acid. And we don't see that much, but as an adult, I can understand. It's just like what is happening is like, that is really horrific. <laughs> yeah. Those guys never heard from again, but presumably they didn't last too much longer. No. And it, it doesn't take long. I think they do discover the Book of the Dead. I think the Americans discover the Book of the Dead. Book of the Dead and, and then the four like canopic Evie, jars that um, the yeah, mummy's right. organs are in. And I think Evie steals the Book of the Dead while everybody's sleeping. Like she was just right. wants, she just basically wants to go read the Book of the Dead. Like she was after the knowledge, right? Because she doesn't believe in curses and everything, right? So like, exactly. I think Rick and some of the others are like, because Rick's been there. And Rick has seen some stuff like at the beginning of the movie where he saw that face appear out of the sand. It's yes. like, there's some weird stuff going on here. So like Evie and Rick and Jonathan find Imhotep's mummified body and it's still, after 3,000 years, it's still decomposing and it's still wet. Yeah. And then like the juicy. Americans find, it's still <laughs> juicy. <laughs> the Americans find the Book of the Dead in those four canopic jars with his organs, which is is, is important, right? Because there's a curse on the box that all this stuff's found. Yes. And it's like, if you take this... You know, you're going to unleash this plague and you're going to be cursed to die or whatever it was. But yeah, Evie steals the book from him and she starts reading out of it out loud, just out of a sense of like, yes, yeah, scientific kind of curiosity, right? She doesn't think that she's going to raise the dead. That's ridiculous nonsense, right? Yeah, and that's exactly what she does. She raises the mummy from the dead <laughs> yeah, she does. and he starts, you know, on his tear and in his decomposed state, he has to get all of his organs back. Uh, including one like his eyes. This one stands out to me the the most here because he steals one of the American treasure hunter's eyes from from him, leaving eyes him alive. And tongue. His tongue as well. That's right. So he's taking that. Not only does he take that, and then there's general chaos. Uh, they all return to London, right? And there's a scene a little later on where the mummy is like, "Well, we got to go over there because we need something." And instead of going after other people to get like the other stuff. It's like, no, he just goes after the same guy again and like steals his skin and his, his other organs and stuff. It's just like, man, this guy was doomed. It's just like, he can't just be a blind guy of no tongue in the world anymore. No, he is definitely dead. He's dehydrated his stuff. The mummy is able to regenerate mostly off this one, this one poor guy. Well, it's kind of neat too, how it, how it works out where the mummy. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a neat thing where you didn't, you wouldn't think about that, but it's like, in order for the mummy to talk, which he does, he needs a tongue in his head. And so like, there's a certain kind of internal logic that the filmmakers obviously, obviously thought of. We are like, oh, well, he's going to need a tongue and eyes to see. And it's neat how like those like kind of mm-hmm. lo- logistics play into the plot where he's like, okay, like, I need to regenerate. But first things first, like, so this mummy is essentially stumbling around blind first, where he's like, yeah. or some kind of supernatural sense. is like, I need to see and I need to talk. So this is my first priority. <laughs> and it, I think, I don't know why it doesn't just kill him. Because like later on when he, when he drains the other people, because there are four people involved in opening that chest. And he, essentially whoever's around that chest when it's open. So if you've got like a hundred people there when it's opened, I guess he has to go through a hundred different people. His life force is like split up a hundred different ways, I guess. I guess so, yeah. According to the logic of the movie. But anyway, there's four guys. Later on, he drains them pretty quickly, but this guy, for some reason, he just rips out his eyes and tongue yeah. to start off with. <laughs> it's almost like I get the sense like he's woken up after 3,000 years and he's like disoriented and he's trying to figure out what's going on because he sees yeah. Rachel Wise's character, Evie, and he's like Anoxuna Moon, which was his um, his lover who was the, you know, the Pharaoh's wife that he was having a love affair with, which started his whole, you know, path down to being cursed for all eternity. But he's like, it's it seems like almost like he's disoriented. So it almost feels like 
you know, even when he's, he's this evil kind of monster character, but he, you get a sense of, you know, he's, yeah. he's slowly like kind of reintegrating into this world and like trying to find out, like trying to figure out like what's going on. Right. It's like your consciousness came, came back into your, you know, decaying rotting corpse for the first time in 3000 years. And you're just like, man, I just want some eyeballs to see, man. First of all, it's like, I didn't just see what's going on around here, man. And can we talk about how good the CGI is at this point? This is 1999. The mummy is for the most part, all CGI at this point. Like he's in his decomposed state. You can see through parts of his body, uh, the animation in his face, uh, everything about it is pretty incredible. Like it really holds up to this day, right? Yeah. Listen, you can see, you can definitely see the edges for sure. It's a movie made in 1999. So there's definitely some edges to see and it's not perfect by any means. But you're right. It, like it holds up so so well compared to a movie, like from a couple years ago. Um, I'm I'm struggling to think of an example because there's tons of examples where the, the oh the yeah I mean CGI, CGI just doesn't hold up these anymore. days. It, it can be amazing, but there's also like you can tell when they're rushed and don't have the budget, and it just looks awful the day of release. Yeah, compared to here's a good example: the end of Black Panther that. That yeah. video game cutscene fight at the end between Black Panther and Killmonger. Um, to use another example, Jungle Cruise, which just came out. If you look at the CGI to that, compared to like mm-hmm. the Mummy, and like I just don't think those movies are just going to hold up as well as the Mummy has. Where you see the, of course, the edges around it, but like it's blended. Like for 1999, you think about like how far the technology has come, and like it looks better than 90 percent of the stuff that's put out today. Um, over 20 doubt. years later. So what 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 happens next? There's there's ten plagues, right? Oh yeah, then it starts going because like the whole thing is like the mummy is bringing the ten plagues of Egypt, and yeah. it's so great when Jonathan um he actually when some of these plagues are happening, and he's quoting from the Bible um what these plagues are in this ominous voice, mm-hmm. and you have this like it's just he because he's like the comic relief kind of side character, but he gets these kind of like serious beats every once in a while, but like it's super creepy, like like the locusts come first. And then there's like another one where there's bugs coming. There's like fire falling down from the sky. There's like a, a solar eclipse. Yeah. And he's just like ominously narrating the stuff. Blood, the water turning to blood mm-hmm. while they're drinking. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> it was pretty gnarly. Yeah. They're just trying so to enjoy horrific. a nice drink at the place. Yeah. yeah it's pretty wild. What is uh, it? And they basically surmise that uh, Emotep is the mummy and he wants to resurrect his forbidden lover, right? He wants to two things he wants to resurrect Anaximun his his lover and he also wants to take over the world as one will yeah yeah it's just like i think his his priority is definitely the lover at this point and i think he needs to sacrifice someone in order to do that and he chooses evie as that sacrifice so while they're all in london it's like he, she's basically snatched up by emotep uh and benny because benny is now working for emotep uh, yeah, right? there's a yeah in in a great scene where yes. uh, Benny has all this religious uh, like necklaces from like all religions. Oh, it's perfect around his neck, and he's going through each one trying to like appeal to the mummy to spare his life. Because first he pulls out a cross, yeah. and he just starts like saying like the Lord's Prayer, and you just think, oh, it's like oh, this is just like a standard thing. like okay, of course he's gonna he's gonna be slimy and weaselly, but his his sliminess and his weaselness goes far far deeper because he pulls out like you said like he's pretty clever but he's got this, all these all these different religious symbols like the buddhism i mean i think like taoism and then finally yeah. um judaism and he starts like praying to um the god of the old testament um yeah. uh, god of abraham and and like it's kind of a neat little tie-in was like oh and like 
Um, Imhotep's like, oh, the language of the slaves. Like, he might be useful. Yeah. So he's working for Imhotep now and doing some of his bidding. It's really fantastic. Uh, there's just there's a lot of good moments. And they basically make their way back to Hamanoptera to do that, that ritual to sacrifice Evie, resurrect his, his lady friend. And um, <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean, they all have to return back to Hamanoptera uh, and basically save the day, right? To the climax of the film, which just has all sorts of levels of, of fantasticness. Oh, it's great. So, so again, like talking about how all these characters have backstories, even that pilot, right? The old RAF yes. pilot, where he's like pining for the glory days and he's so sad that he his friends kind of died in a blaze of glory and he's kind of just yeah. wasting away. And like, and obviously he has a pre-existing relationship with, with O'Connell. It's like, oh, we're going to fly back out there to catch up with them. And he's yeah. like, and he's like, oh, well, is there, what does this have to do with the, you know, with Her Majesty's Royal Air Force? He's like, not a damn thing. It's like, but, <laughs> but there's glory involved. There's glory. Is there a chance of death? It's like, oh yeah, you're probably not coming back from this. And he's like, let's do it. But it's like, there's a, there's like humor to it, but there's also like that kind of sadness to the, this, this yeah. old guy who's essentially lost all of his comrades and his friends in the war. And he does get his, he does find his peace. He ends up in, when the plane crashes, another great bit of, of CGI that still looks really good where like oh, yeah. Imhotep creates this giant sandstorm and it's chasing down the plane and he's got this, like his face appearing in the yeah. sandstorm and everything. And it, it causes the plane to crash. And that old RAF pilot, he dies and he finds, it's not a sad thing where he's finding peace, right? You saw he was very kind of exactly trouble, but he, this, this little, they didn't have to do that, right? They didn't have to put all these little beats into the, into the backstory of this character that we see for maybe three scenes, but yeah. all, but it just, it adds so, so much. And, um, I just want to point out like the, there's a sword fight scene here where, uh, now Emotep, his power is much more significant than it was when he first, uh, uh risen up. Um, and he's able to sort of like bring these these guards back to life, like these mummified dudes who are pretty hardcore and they walk in unison and Rick has to fight them with a sword. Just excellent bit of choreography. The action it is one continuous scene here where he's swinging the sword around. All these things are CG, but he's able to interact with them. And it's like, I think I we probably watched the same episode of, of that YouTube show where they talk about special effects. Corridor like, crew? Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's like these mummies are hand animated around Brendan Fraser's acting and it's done so well. And it's like there's there's comic gags in the fighting as well while he's, you know, cutting their heads off and batting them out of, out of the screen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's still a lot of risk involved because it's like, oh, this is this is some real danger. And they seem to have weight in the scene. Like they it's, it was really it's amazing. Really if you look compelling. at that corridor crew breakdown of that scene, it's literally Brendan Fraser just swinging his sword through the air at imaginary. Yeah. It's not people in green suits like that. You have today, yeah. or like the, those jumpsuits with the tracking balls. They didn't have the technology at the time to do that stuff. So it's literally just like, Oh, we're going to choreograph this fight. Right. And it's like, Oh, we're going to have this bad guy here, this bad guy here. And this bad guy here. And you look at the level of acting you have to do to make that believable. Well, you're just mm -hmm. having a fight with imaginary people all around you, memorizing these moves. And in this space, and then like the final products, looks amazing when they like part of it's like the CG and they put these characters in there and they're interacting with Rick in amazing ways, but for it to be believable, like Brendan Fraser had to sell that. And Oh my goodness. Like he sells that so he well. You would did. never have known. I thought for sure that there were actual people there that got painted out afterwards. And, and I love that. It's like the entire thing 
it looks like a, it doesn't, it's not that it looks like a set. You can tell it's a real set, right? There's not, everything is CGI. Like there's a, uh, there's like a platform in the middle of this fighting arena. Yeah. You know, in today you would find out that that was just a green block that they, yeah. CGI. It's like, no, no, they, they actually crafted a lot of these sets to make it look real. Like these things look like stone. Everything looks so good on screen here. Yeah, it's great, that whole fight. And like you said, like just the cinematography where it's not a million little cuts where you can follow the action. Like there's a, there's several scenes where it's held for like several seconds. Like it's not like there's still like see, like scenes aren't actually, if you look at movies, they're not held for a super long time, but you're looking like mm. five, ten seconds at a go or something crazy like that. But you can really follow the action. And there's like these little kind of comedic beats where he cuts up, for example, one at one point, he's like kind of pinned to the ground, and there's one mummy coming with like holding this giant stone obelisk, <laughs> and he's gonna crush him. And he finally gets his his sword as like there's a dis- dismembered mummy hand crawling over to the sword that he can't quite reach. And once the once the mummy hand grabs the sword, he reaches over, grabs that mummy yeah. hand, cuts the legs off the other guy, and he and the mummy falls back, and the stone crushes the mummy instead of Brendan Fraser. There's like a look on the mummy's face while that's oh. happening. He's like, "Oh man, I am cooked." But that whole scene reminded me of The Evil Dead. Yeah, yeah. just have that coming. It's like the the disembodied hand, like crawling towards the sword on the ground. It's like this this hand is intent on using the sword to kill Rick, and then it's just oh. like quickly turned turned around to kill one of his buddies. There, a couple homage shots to Evil Dead in here as well, yeah. which is really considering that you know the Mummy was originally based on a horror film. This the Mummy nineteen ninety nine is more of like an action adventure film with horror elements, mm-hmm. but like you see that one shot. When they first release the mummy and they and they they escape from Hamanoptera and the hand shoots up out of the ground, the mummy's hand. Yes, yes. It's a direct homage to the yeah, shot from right. Evil Dead. And then this, like, yeah, this. Of course, anytime I see a disembodied hand crawling across the ground trying to kill somebody, that's got to go back to Evil Dead too. So there's definitely, I think there's some of that, either consciously or unconsciously, um, yeah, that that homage being paid to those horror films as well, right? So so many, like you said, so many different layers going on. It's a fun action comedy adventure film um but with just all these kind of different layers going on underneath that just to add that substance and to really draw you into that world right and i really enjoyed the like the finale like obviously they're going to defeat the mummy they, they send them back to the underworld there whatnot uh, dur- all during all this whole thing all the fighting whatnot benny is trying to loot the treasure because there's a room full of gold and he's oh, going yeah, in is. and out of the the tomb uh, loading up treasure and he accidentally sets off uh, like this trap that basically causes the entire structure to like slowly come down on him right of course our heroes are able to get through uh, benny in his greed is just weighed down by all this gold and by the time he sheds it it's too late for him uh, he's sort of sealed inside this tomb and of course those classic beetles come out of the ground oh, and it goes dark uh but we just hear screams and what's nice about that is that our heroes are rewarded with one of the bags of gold that he looted earlier, right? Because he was loading up the camels outside while our heroes are the only one who survived. So they come out, they're riding home. And just like in one of the shots, you see like the glint of gold out of the one, the, the saddlebags. It's like the heroes reckon they may not even know that that gold is there. And they don't know. Uh, it the doesn't time. matter. It's just like they, they got that reward, but they also save the, save themselves. They save the world. Uh, they're, they're good to go. And it's a very satisfying. Ending. It's great too, because Evie at one point tells Benny, it's like, you know, like, you know, like little conniving people like you always get their comeuppance. Yeah. And I, and I love that. It's like, <laughs> and I love this, like 
played as like Benny. Like normally it's like, oh yeah, no, you're gonna get your comeuppance. It's like Benny's like, what? Really? We we do? <laughs> he's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they do. And he's like, he's it actually troubles him. It's like it's like a little yeah. comedic moment played there. But like what you're saying about Benny's death, right? Where um, because what they had, they had a series of mirrors. I was like, it was really neat. It's like yeah, they, they thought of this it's like inside of this tomb would be. Of course, it's going to be dark. There's no lights down there. They wouldn't have natural. They wouldn't have electrical lights mm-hmm. in the, back in the 1920s to take down there, or electrical lights that they could that were portable enough. So like, no, it's like well, this had this one throwaway line. It's like no, these these ancient trick with these mirrors. We'd have a series of mirrors and like one on on top of the hole, like a like be like a hole opening down. You'd have this to light up the whole thing is like ah oh, it's just like this one little in-universe yeah. thing is like that's why it's bright inside here that's why we can see what's going on but like as this as the entire city of hominopter is like collapsing in on itself like this one easily flickable like protruding switch that anybody could have just like <laughs> leaned on at any time yeah the, best the collapse of everything very like movie logic-esque but the movie the mirrors get crushed and he's standing alone and the only thing the only light he has is from his torch right it's almost it's where kind of Indiana Jones esque, where like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they're down in that pit and the snakes are around them, and they just have the torch warding off the snakes, but like the all those like beetles are are crawling around them, and he's like just and the, it's just the light holding them back, and the torch goes out. All you hear is the scream, <clears throat> and there's a couple scenes in the movie like this where you just hear a scream, mm-hmm. or like when that that first guy got his before he got his eyes and his tongue ripped out that first American guy, you don't see the mummy, right? It goes to an extreme close-up on his face. Yeah. And as actor, you see like his face change. You see the horror in his face come over him and you see him like slowly turn like, and then it cuts away as he's screaming. And like those to me, more than like the kind of gory bits of when people are getting, you see like the flesh off their bones, but like Benny's scream or that, that dude's face of pure horror. And then the scream as it cuts away, to me, like those are like the really kind of horrifying moments. Oh, without where, a doubt. where your like, brain really kind of takes over and fills in those blanks. It's just such a smart choice. Yeah, like you, they want your imagination to run wild because either constraints with the the scene or just like saving money, uh, your imagination can do a much better job than what they can throw up on screen to like truly terrify you. And I think in like a PG thirteen movie like this, it's more effective. Like we don't need to see a gory scene to get the point across just have her just show the reaction shot we can fill in the blank it's just like seeing the monster we don't necessarily need to see the monster do it do his thing here right yeah incredible but overall i mean just in terms of like the actors like these actors were all perfectly cast in their roles mm-hmm. include like we talked about brendan Fraser, i think being perfect as like the kind of dashing rogue treasure hunting um, you know, hero of the story, Rachel Wise was perfect. I love that, you know, she mm-hmm. wasn't a fighter, that she brought something else to the table, that not yeah. everybody was like, a, even Jonathan, he wasn't like the best fighter there, but he was bringing something to the table anyway, right? He was yeah. in the final battle, even Jonathan had something to do, right? Like comes out, it was like he can, he's reading this passage from the book of, of with Amun-Ra, I think. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course. Like he's got this educational background. He's like he yeah. can read hieroglyphics too, just like Rachel Weiss. So it's almost like you see like that sibling dynamic where like he's they both have the same kind of background of education, but he just hasn't applied himself kind of thing. Yeah, like he's trying to discreetly. He's getting stuck on one of the hieroglyphics in the book, 
and he's trying to describe it and like his arm is moving up and down. He's trying to describe it because Evie is across Stark. the room and she's yelling out like, this is what it should a say. Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. A manifest. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like th- those characters are, are perfectly written. They're perfectly cast. Like Arnold Vosloo, I think we got to give a shout out as Imhotep oh, as well. Yeah. Um, and then I can't remember the, the actor's name for Anaxuna Moon. She doesn't have a whole lot of screen time in this, but, uh, but you get a you get so much between their relationship. Like you believe that these are kind of star-crossed lovers, right? Like yeah. So that was like the entire uh, prologue to the movie was kind of that initial setup, right? Uh, taking place in ancient Egypt it was like twenty five hundred BC or something. Also, I gotta say, like as a as a teenage boy, like Anax and the Moon was definitely <laughs> definitely a movie crush of mine um, growing up. I mean. Well, I was just reading the trivia uh, and the number one trivia from IMDb. You know take it with a grain of salt is that it says with the exception of a loincloth, a few pieces of jewelry and pasties, Patricia Velasquez, uh, as the actress, yeah. uh, her costume consists, consists entirely of body paint, which took four hours to apply. Uh, so, I mean, obviously being 17, 18 years old, that was a, that was a nice treat, uh, on top of the, uh, the I was def- rest of the film. definitely had a, a, a celebrity <laughs> crush on her for, for a bit there. For sure. I'm not gonna, not gonna lie, but like all the actors were perfectly cast. Like it was, like it was so well written, this, like the pacing, like wit, written, directed, and edited. I think it all comes together, right? It was like the pacing was just bang on. All those character beats just landed so so well. Yeah. Um, the cinematography, like you're saying, is like you know you see it's the action scenes are exciting, but they're so clear you could follow everything that's going on. There's yeah. little character beats where you're like even in the action scenes you're you're revealing little things about the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just. Everything about this movie is just is just off the charts. Do you even have a rating for this movie? <laughs> like, obviously, like that- <laughs> to give you some context, on Letterbox, this has a three point four rating, um, which you know I th- I thought it was going to be higher than that, like an average rating. Yeah, um, but I had difficulty uh, rating this recently. Like, I try and put something on every movie I watch. I did not put a rating on this one. I just gave it the heart. I don't know if it's nostalgia and just my love for everything about this, but it's like, is this a five-star film for me or is it a four-star with a with a heart on it, you know? Right. This is easily for me a five-star film with the heart. Yeah. Right? Talk, we're talking letterbox ratings here for those of you who don't understand yes. what the heart thing is, but you can go, you know, it's a five-star rating, plus you can actually like, like the film and that's it's represented by a heart icon. Yeah. But I give it five and a heart because like every time I go back to this, and maybe it's nostalgia, but it takes me back to my childhood. But every time I watch it, it still holds up so well. And I feel drawn into the adventure, right? I'm going yeah. on the adventure with these characters. They All the pieces just fit perfectly into place. It's not a movie that's going to challenge me philosophically, but it's not meant to, right? It's meant to be no. this escapist fantasy adventure and it succeeds perfectly in this, right? And that's why... You know, it sets this goal for itself and it, it actually, it's, it, it's, it hits that goal, but it exceeds that goal as well. Every time I just mm-hmm. like, I have a big smile plastered on my face watching this movie, jokes that I've seen a hundred times, yeah. I'm still <laughs> laughing at them. They're still, they're still landing. These character beats is just like something, they captured something true to life in the interactions with these characters, even though they're kind of caricatures, it's kind of, it's almost like a live action cartoon. It feels like sometimes, right? Like you could see an animated version of the mummy, right? And we've talked about this more in the past few months uh, doing this podcast, but it's like, I am really like, as I get older, really appreciating 
even simple depth to characters. And I think we talked about it with Jungle Cruise. Um, and this one is just every character on screen, they have speaking lines, they have a backstory. There's these little mini arcs going on. There's, there's satisfying things happening with all the characters here. It's just, I don't know. I don't know how else to articulate it. It's, it's a beloved film. I absolutely love it. Yeah, everything was here. Stephen Summers, like at his at his prime, directing this thing, and writing it, and writing it. Yeah, which is surprising because like the Mummy Returns does did not hold up. I watched that. I did a a double feature last oh, night: yeah. the Mummy and the Mummy Returns back to back. Yeah, so I guess that's the important thing to note here. I mean, this movie uh, just before we move on, a huge financial success. I, I, Wikipedia here is telling me that they had a budget of $80 million. It had a box office of $416 million, obviously a smash hit for the studio. Wow. And they like rushed a sequel to this movie. This mummy came out in 1999. The mummy returns came out in 2001, uh, a very quick turnaround time. And it's literally like may 2001. So probably less than a year and a half of production and post-production whatnot. Um, it shows absolutely bananas. Like it was really, uh, we won't get fully into the memory returns, but it was a, a pretty big disappointment, right? Um, it's not near the quality. Evo, it is also oh. written and directed by Steven Summers. Uh, it stars pretty much all the same characters and, uh, uh, an actor that we did not talk about for the first one, who is like the, uh, kind of like the de facto leader of the Magi. Oh uh, yeah. dead fair. That guy's uh, awesome. Fantastic and had a greatly expanded role. Patricia Velasquez uh, from the first one, greatly expanded role here as well. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's like it's when you look at it on paper, like everything about The Mummy Returns should have worked. And it just fell short. Um, yeah. It was a strange. It was kind of a strange film. For, for perspective, I gave The Mummy uh, five, five stars and the heart. Um, Mummy Returns, I think I gave that two and a half stars which is like a huge drop off. It's like, it just goes to show you <laughs> how difficult it is maybe to, yeah. to get it right. And to catch that lightning in the bottle. I'm not saying that it's impossible to catch that lightning in the bottle again. Cause if you look at for me, like the Indiana, the Indiana Jones trilogy, the original trilogy um, for me, those are all, those are all hits, right? Those are all like first, somehow they were able to recapture that magic you know, three it's times. Funny. It's funny because while I was watching it and like near the end of the film, I was like, this is literally half the film of the original mummy. And you just, you just quantify right there. Five stars down to two and a half. I actually do have a rating on my letterbox uh, of the mummy returns that I gave it two and a half stars as well. (laughs) It's just, you know, great minds think alike here. Right. But uh, I did rewatch it last night uh, as well. And it's like, oh, I, I can see a bit of the brilliance shining through a bit, but it was really quashed down with, a lot of like way too much ambition into and reliance on CGI where the CGI really worked in the first one. They tried to get too grand in the second one. There was a lot of bad things happening in the second one, essentially. I don't don't want to fully get into it, but yeah, but you, you get to see it's interesting to contrast between the mummy and then the mummy returns and then the mummy um, tomb of the dragon emperor, which was on the third movie in the, in the series. Um, It was actually, I think there's like, seven or eight movies total in that universe. Cause the Scorpion King had a bunch of movies. There was the spinoff there. Um, okay. So yeah, I mean, that's important to, to note here. The mummy returns introduced the Scorpion King, the rock specifically is a Scorpion King. I think Dwayne, the rock one of his Johnson. first, 
feature film. So it was, honestly, yeah. Uh, and it, the very next year, 2001 was Mummy Returns. 2002 was The Scorpion King. Uh, I guess it was successful enough. It's just like they really wanted to push this guy out there. I don't really remember the quality, but again, yeah. uh, it says story by Stephen Summers, screenplay by Stephen Summers, directed by Chuck Russell. Uh, it did not do nearly as well as any of the Mummy movies, uh, financially at least. But it is there. Now, did, have you seen the third Mummy, the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor? Not only have I seen it, I actually own it. Oh, very nice. <laughs> and I, I have not seen it. I started watching it last night in a double feature. Uh, I, an hour in, I was just way too tired. I could not continue. The movie was yeah, not gripping enough. It just, again, it lacks that magic. Um, one of the things that's gone is like Rachel Weiss is replaced by, I think, Maria Maria Bello, I think yes, is her name. That's right. Um, she's a great actor. I love watching her work. But interaction between... Um, you they know, don't have the same chemistry. Chemistry. Like, uh, Brandon yeah, Fraser and Rachel Wise have this good chemistry. Mm-hmm. Their characters were good. You don't get that same thing in this one. Yeah, with Maria Bello, I don't get the same level of vulnerability as I got with Rachel Weisz. I was like, Rachel Weisz, I could buy her being in danger. Maria Bello just seemed too confident, which is like yeah. not a bad thing, but it's like it just didn't fit the character. I don't know. Yeah, which is which is fair. Um, and then the the whole series just kind of petered out at that point. Invo. To the third one made just over four hundred million dollars. I think it, the budget was probably, you know, quite a bit higher. Uh, I think there was like an animated series. There were probably numerous video games on the thing, but the whole Mummy series just kind of came to an end in two thousand eight with the third one. Um, yeah, and then kind of rebooted in twenty seventeen as a as a, an attempt to relaunch like a shared monster verse. With Tom Cruise in The Mummy uh, in 2017. I think I already said that, but um, critically panned, audiences hate it. The only good thing I will say about The Mummy in 2017 was this bananas, you know, zero G in the plane action scene, which, you know, is only exciting to watch because Tom Cruise is actually up there doing some of his own stunts and whatnot. Uh, quite the spectacle, but like so far removed from the mummy that I grew up with. Yeah. That's just, it, it just bears no comparison. Yeah. The mummy 2017. I don't think I hated it as much as um, a lot of people did. I thought it was a perfectly fine summer blockbuster, yeah. but it was definitely nowhere near. It was, it was hindered a lot by um, the concept at the time where they were literally building out um, a cinematic universe because Marvel was so successful and Universal was like, oh, we're just going to build out our monster verse and it's going to be super easy, barely an inconvenience. <laughs> but they, uh, but that led to some really weird narrative choices that just really held the movie back. I mean, it was, it was fine, but it was like, it didn't, it's not going to have the same magic. I don't think in 20 years that, that the mummy has the 1990, the 1999 version has. Man, I, so you mentioned there were numerous Scorpion King movies. I, I had no idea. I'm looking at the Wikipedia article as oh, we, I can't remember whether as we like say this. There four was or five, a right? direct-to-video prequel, uh, Scorpion King 2, Rise of a Warrior, uh, 2008. Scorpion King 3, Battle for Redemption in 2012. Uh, Scorpion King 4, Quest for Power in 2015. Uh, Michael Bain and Rucker Hauer were in that. And finally, a... Fifth film, Scorpion King, Book of Souls in 2018, and apparently a plan to reboot the Scorpion King film series 
in November 2020. I had no <laughs> idea the Scorpion King kept going. Like it is still like it is for for this. It's basically an active <laughs> franchise. <laughs> yeah, man. The Scorpion King had five films compared to The Mummy's three. So like, yeah, take wow. that take that for what it is. <laughs> take that for what you will. I don't know. Oh my goodness! And The Rock wasn't in any other movies except for that very first one. Yeah. Which, uh, wow, incredible. Yeah. Man. It, it certainly is something. Well, do you have anything else to say about The Mummy or The Mummy franchise in general? Yeah, The Mummy, I think the first one, the first Mummy, um, the 1999 version, the the Brendan Fraser verse Mummy. Yes. I mean, that is stone cold classic. I think that, you know, it's it's proven to stand the test of time. It, it captured the imaginations of audiences back then i think it's finding a resurgence and an appreciation now mm-hmm. when people look at modern blockbusters and they look back at movies like the mummy or movies like pirates of the caribbean which came out four years later big action adventure set pieces um and there's an i think there's a newfound appreciation for yeah um the the um the directness, maybe the simplicity of, of the storytelling, the effectiveness of the of the special effects, and the the depth of the characters. Right, there's something mm-hmm. that was kind of special. There's a spark, maybe that I'm not saying it can't be recaptured or recreated, but it's not it's not being um, captured or recreated with with modern blockbusters. I think there's a new yeah. appreciation for some of those some of those films, and I think the the Mummy really is going to stand the test of time in another twenty years. Um, mm-hmm. In, in ways that a lot of block other blockbusters at that time aren't. And a lot of blockbusters in the last 20 years are not going to be on that list either. I think it's for, it's a great movie for any age. It's a great, I loved sharing that, being able to share that with my mm-hmm. family and, and my kids now and pass, hopefully pass that, that love and that adventure and that excitement on. But like the mummy is just, it's a great film. If you, if you haven't seen it, go out and and find it either streaming online or, you know, buy a Blu-ray copy. Um, if you have seen it, go out and see it again, because every time you watch it, it's one of those movies. It just keeps getting better and better every time you watch it. It really does. I'm, I'm really happy to hear like, you know, spending some time on social media, a new generation discovering Brendan Fraser at his peak and discovering the mummy. Um, this movie does deserve it. I think you said it right there. Like this, this will live on for quite a while. This is not a modern day blockbuster that is quickly forgotten. This one is still in the hearts of a people who experienced it back then and the new generation. Um, just really fantastic. A and new generation rises. It is oddly enough one of the first 4K films I picked up a few years ago ah. when I got uh, into 4K. Um, so I, it's kind of a shameful admission here, but it, it came with the entire trilogy and I still have not seen the third movie in its entirety, even though it's been sitting on my also, show for two years. An interesting stat for listeners. It was also one of the first films you bought on HD DVD. Yes. I know this because I'm sitting here looking <laughs> at the copy that you bought that I acquired from you and I yeah. still have that HD DVD copy sitting here on my shelf. Oh my goodness. I'm pointing off you to the side. I- so like. But even Brian yeah. can't see it, and audiences definitely can't see it because it's a podcast. <laughs> but it is here within arm's reach. That's pretty incredible. You know what? I totally forgot that I bought on HD DVD. This would have been one of the earlier DVDs I bought, probably in 2000, yeah. 2001. And I probably bought it on Blu-ray as well. It's just one of those movies that's just like, 
almost subconsciously, I'm going to rebuy every single time it comes out. It's a classic, like Back to the Future, or Indiana Jones, or Die Hard, where like every yeah. time they come out, I'm going to be one of the first ones in line. I'm a sucker for that. I want to see it in the highest possible quality, and I want to give my money to these people. Like this, <laughs> this is the stuff that I want more of. What a great ride that is. Fantastic. Yeah, this should be taught in film class. You want to make a good Hollywood blockbuster action adventure period piece? You study Indiana Jones, you study The Mummy, right? And that's a wrap on another episode of The Real Film Chronicles. Thank you so much for listening and hanging out with us today. We're having a great time putting these together and love sharing these episodes with you. We can be found on a few platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, all of which are linked in the show notes. You can also reach us by email, and of course, you can find our website at realfilmchronicles.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves and others, and keep that film journey going.